earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the Scriptures. Join me once again in Philippians 1.1. Picking up where we left it Wednesday night, we dealt with grace, and we got to look at peace. Paul's very fond of using grace and peace in his benedictions. As we see... Verse 2, excuse me, Philippians 1, 2, grace to you in peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And some of the fundamental doctrines that any believer needs to get, get a handle on is just this, grace and peace. And uh, the idea that grace saves us and then we never see grace again is insane. Uh, we, ha- we have grace that saves us, grace we live by, grace we walk by grace we're going to die by in the the principles of dying grace that carry us from time into eternity and the blessings there. So if you missed it Wednesday night, I encourage you to get that MP3 and and follow up on that and the material we dealt with related to grace. Uh, I want to move on this morning to handle uh, peace and then as we have time, uh, then get our first look at verses 3 through 11 as we deal with the Thanksgiving uh, aspect here as uh, uh, we have things to celebrate related to uh, related to that. So before we get started, let's take a moment for silent prayer, asking God the Father to set aside our distractions, uh, tornado alerts or anything like that. Just put that out of your thinking. We're going to love Jesus Christ and learn His Word here this morning. Shall we pray? Most gracious Heavenly Father, we do come before your throne of grace once again this morning, undeserving, unworthy, yet made worthy. Here we are in Christ, Father, and He is worthy of all things. And uh, in Him, Father, we are worthy of all things. I thank you for the grace that makes these things possible. I thank you for the righteousness imputed to our account by faith in Christ. I look forward, Father, to reaping additional benefits on this day, including the ministry of your truth. Father, as we feast upon your word, uh, build us up in the faith and strengthen us in the inner man. I do thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's most precious and holy name. Amen. All right. So Philippians 1, 2, and I'll zip ahead in our slideshow to where we were. I'm going to do a couple of things here. I've been experimenting with this slide uh, presenter view, and then... We'll see if this allows me to skip ahead. Yes, that's what we want to do. All right. So um, Wednesday night we were dealing with main point E or sub point E under uh, main point three. Uh, A local church is a subset of the universal church, remember that, Uh, which is fixed to a particular locality and is administered through the offices of overseer and deacon. That was main point three in uh, the outline of this salutation, the final main point in the outline of this salutation, under which uh, A, B, C, D, and then E brings us to this slide here, <clears throat> the vocabulary for grace and peace. Charis and Irene, grace and peace are common opening benedictions, very standard for not only Paul, he's particularly fond of them, but beyond Paul, <clears throat> Peter and John make use of them as well. Uh, you see that there in 1 Peter 1, 2 and 2 Peter 1, 2. You also have John in uh, 2 John and in Revelation. And so we took the time to, with subpoint one, to talk about the grace of God. It's the grace of God that saves us, Romans 3.24 and Ephesians 2, 5 and 8. It's the grace of God that sustains us. 
We recognize in Romans 5, 2, that we're introduced by faith into this grace in which we stand. And the fact that we do stand is a testimony to His grace. Uh, Apart from His sustaining grace day by day, none of us would stand. We would be introduced to a grace that we would very quickly fall away from or fall out of, you understand. But it's the grace of God that sustains us. And so there's the emphasis of it there in in Romans 5, 2. A passage also that speaks to peace, which we'll see as well. 1 Corinthians 15.10 also addresses that, one of my favorite passages. In fact, I gave away my my, uh, uh, request that it be put on my tombstone. By the grace of God, I am what I am, and yet I labored more than all of them. See, nevertheless, not I, but the grace of God in me. 2 Corinthians 9.8 and 2 Corinthians 12.9, also with respect to ongoing, sustaining grace. God is able to make all grace abound to you. And the application there, we want to be very clear on as well, the able applications are not automatic. The able applications are not, uh, God will always, unconditionally, no matter what you do, make all grace abound. No, it says God is able to make all grace abound. And so we want to be very clear that we're operating within His grace parameters so that we can be, as we can see God, apply the grace to His ability and uh, and uh, aspects there. Ultimately, grace is what brings us into His glory. And I think Ephesians 2, 7, we pay more attention to that and how it's uh, tucked right there in between verse 5 and verse 8 in the context of that grace. It's grace that saves us, it's grace that sustains us, and ultimately it's grace that's going to continue to be multiplied in the coming ages, in the ages to come, that His grace is going to be testified to. And so that becomes significant as well. Let me just grab that real quickly here. Ephesians 2, 7. <clears throat> Not to spend the whole hour on it, but it says, uh, so that, right? This is the purpose clause. We pay attention to these or the, uh, the result. So that in the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace. And I don't know about you, but I kind of think it's neat the the grace that he shows today. <laughs> you know, the grace that he's showing right here, right now, to me is amazing. And we sing amazing grace, and then there we have it. Well, we're going to have to come up with some other adjectives that go beyond amazing, because like surpassing, right? It's in the ages to come he might show the surpassing grace towards us in kindness in Christ Jesus. And so that then opens up a whole realm of thought a whole realm of, of considerations that we have to uh, pay attention to in our Alpha to Omega overview. If we're going to take a look at, uh, well, are we talking about the tribulation? Are we talking about the millennium? What are we talking about? See, well, we're not here for the tribulation, so we can't be talking about that. What are we talking about? What is the grace of God going to be manifest in a surpassing grace application in the ages, plural, to come? The millennium is only one of which, all right? But it's ages, plural, that he might show the surpassing value of the grace. And so I think we have another testimony to a stewardship after the thousand years, and uh, which, of course, is the new heavens and new earth, the fullness of time that uh, Ephesians 1.10 speaks to. So anyway, all of that came together. Uh, I was thankful for that and the song that, that Doug wrote and we got to sing last Sunday, After the Thousand Years. You know, we're not looking for the thousand years. We're looking for new heavens and new earth in which righteousness dwells. That's after the thousand years, as we understand it. <clears throat> so ultimately, it's the grace of God that brings us into His glory. First Peter 1.13, 1 Peter 1.13, again, I just want to grab these quickly and then we'll move on. But in First Peter, 
Hebrews, James, 1 Peter. Here we go. One thirteen. The um, and there's a context for this in ten through twelve that precedes it. A dispensational context, by the way, which pinpoints us and the church as uh, superior to the Old Testament prophets in uh, in that aspect. Okay. In any event, verse thirteen says, "Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you." at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And there it is again. I mean, man, can we, can we handle any more grace? I mean, you just, it's grace upon grace. And it's, uh, it's so much and it's, it's overwhelming, but we're thankful for it. And this is uh, what we have to look forward to. Uh, same book, chapter 5, 1 Peter 5 and verse 10. After you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who called you to His eternal glory in Christ, will Himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. And this, uh, again, with a context of taking us from time into eternity, ultimately brings us into His glory, the God of all grace, as we see it there. Grace, finally, grace rejects any works or merit. And it uh, can't be more plain than that. Romans 4.4, 4, uh, Romans 4.16, Romans 11.6. The minute you add works to the equation, you just threw grace out the window, Okay. Uh, even if it's 99% grace and 1% works, doesn't matter. 1% of 1%. Grace has no works connected to it in any, in any event. And we want to be clear on that. All right. So beyond grace, we then have peace. The twin benediction here. We have grace and peace. The, so, so point two. The finished work of Christ gives us peace with God, peace with one another, and powerfully sustains us in every circumstance and detail of life. We have peace with God, we have peace with one another, and we have peace in any circumstance of life. I don't care what you're going through. God's peace is going to be there for you, all right? And uh, we have to be clear on this. Otherwise, we're slaves. We're slaves to our circumstances and details, and clearly we're not. We're not supposed to be. We can have peace in any circumstance, no matter what. As, uh, As the chaos rages, we have peace, and that's the blessing of our position in Christ and the mental attitude we're supposed to have. And so uh, hopefully these verses are going to be clear for us as well. Uh, were there any surprises with those grace verses? I asked you that on Sunday. I said, hopefully there was not a, one of those grace verses that was new to anyone, that maybe there were applications you hadn't thought of before. Maybe there were you know, tweaks or nuances you hadn't really approached in, in quite that way. But they should have at least been familiar in, in that respect. I think these peace verses as well. Uh, if you've never been exposed to any of these peace verses, I, I, I would be... Um, I'd feel bad. I feel like I, I let you down in previous mo- weeks, months, and years. Uh, these should be familiar to us in uh, in this respect, uh, particularly since Romans five one is a repeat from where we were last week. Let's look at it again. Romans chapter five. We're talking about this great position that we have in Christ. We we, we get how the fact that that. You got the, the Gentile depravity or the immoral depravity. We've got the moral depravity. We've got religious depravity. Uh, you got a, a, a working outline for Romans 1 and Romans 2 right there. 
And you find out in Romans 3 that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So what's the answer? None of us measures up. Well, we're going to be justified by grace. And that's how uh, Romans unfolds. And that it gets developed in chapter 4, it gets developed in chapter 5. We're justified by faith. Grace through faith in Jesus Christ. And so we see it here. So in Romans 5.1 it says, Therefore, having been justified by faith. So is that certain people? Is that special people? Or is that everybody? right? Every born-again believer in Christ. It's a positional truth reality for every single one of us. When you place your faith in Christ, this is what happens. You are justified. And the whole realm of position, possession, blessings is then assigned to you, including this peace. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And so we have peace with God. And really, how could it be any other way? How could it be a uh, a second blessing? How could it be uh, an add-on on top of our salvation? No, it's, it's very much part and parcel with our salvation. I say it is the, it is the essence of what it means to be saved. Uh, if you're not saved, you're in Adam. You're unreconciled. You are not at peace with God. But when you're in Christ, you're reconciled. You're at peace with God. By definition, you can't be saved without being at peace with God as far as that goes, all right? And so it is the finished work of Christ. It's, uh, it doesn't depend on us, right? On a, on a positional truth basis, you can't go to that verse that says, uh, if possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men, okay? That applies experientially, and that applies to you and I in dealing with some human beings, many of which are rather unreasonable, okay? But when we're talks about our, our peace with God, it's an entirely different aspect, it is, it is uh, a positional, universal, absolute reality. We have peace with God, and that's never going to change. That is an eternal possession that we have, and we can rejoice in that. So we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ on the basis of His finished work. Uh, everything that, that's credited to our account because of what He accomplished. And, and then we go on to verse 2, through whom also, through whom also, and I love that, we don't stop with verse 1, okay? We don't say, hey, happy to be saved, and now we just wait around going to heaven when we die. No, there's stuff to do in the meantime. And we are active in our faith in the meantime, through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand. And so we are, we're able now to start operating in our standing, in our, uh, the sustaining grace as we stand in this uh, saved estate, in this peace estate. So we uh, obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we exult in hope of the glory of God. And so it's a wonderful uh, trinity there, really, when you uh, break it down. So we exult in hope of the glory of God. So the finished work of Christ gives us peace with God. More than that, it gives us peace with one another. It's the basis by which we can have peace with one another, the only basis all right, and if we try to find some other basis, if we try to manipulate things and create an artificial peace, it's such a sad counterfeit. What are we really trying to do? There should be no other basis on which we have peace with one another other than the finished work of Jesus Christ, our position in Him. So Romans fourteen nineteen and Colossians three fifteen, verses that, uh, again, we should be familiar with these as well. Romans 14... This is a great uh, 
chapter for uh, interpersonal dynamics in a local church uh, because it's, uh, it's a chapter, 14 and 15 both, these back-to-back chapters, deal with human beings and their opinions, okay? And you might have noticed uh, we have them, okay? And, and you're not the only one. The other guy does too. And sometimes those opinions don't exactly mesh, okay? And that's fine. That's fine. They don't have to mesh. There are applications. There are applications of conscience. There are applications whereby we have liberty and we choose to use it or we choose not to use it or we choose to use it in certain ways. We choose not to use it in other ways. And different believers come to different convictions related to any of these, any of these things. And so um, you can just tell as the chapter begins, it says, except the one who is weak in faith, but not for the purpose of passing judgment on his opinions. <laughs> okay? So we start right off the bat by uh, recognizing it's a, it's a matter of acceptance. They're saved by grace like I'm saved by grace. And we're not uh, criticizing them for the... Uh, did I just lose my microphone? Okay. We're not criticizing them for... Um, the, the opinions that they hold, right? So have you ever heard something like this? Um, well, that's your opinion, okay? What they really mean to say is, well, that's your stupid opinion, okay? <laughs> or that's your wrong opinion, you know? Feel free to hold it if you want, but that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard of, okay? No. This verse doesn't allow for that. These two chapters don't allow for that. We should be thankful, even if it is, not stupid, okay, it is a legitimate application of what they're making based on their convictions in the Word of God. And thank God for it. I think there's far too many people that aren't making decisions based on convictions in the Word of God. I'm happy every time I hear of one. Oh, wow, that's a faith conviction? Great. Thank you for making a faith conviction in the application of the Word of God. And so it goes on. One person has faith that he may eat all things. He who is weak eats vegetables only. Great. Great for both of them. And, and as far as I'm concerned, I'm happy for people that eat vegetables. That's more meat for me related to that. All right. And see, the one who eats is not to regard with contempt the one who does not eat. We should celebrate the convictions that each one of us has and be mindful of it. All right? And, and promote that and pray for that. And um, we don't look down our long snooty noses. The one who does not eat is not to judge the one who eats. For God has accepted him. That's why we accept one another. Each one of us is accepted. This concept, our positional truth in Christ, is the only basis by which you and I can have peace with one another. It comes down to that. Who are you to judge the servant of another? To his own master he stands or falls say did i miss something here were you hanging on the cross to to save that person no all right then (laughs) let's uh let's have some grace towards one another let's have some peace towards one another and that's why paul in every benediction says grace and peace may they be multiplied unto you and so uh who are you to judge the servant of another to his own master he stands or falls and he will stand isn't that great for the lord is able to make him stand you see that again there we are again. There's that able. God is able to make all grace abound. The Lord is able to make him stand. 
And so when we're talking about God's ability and whether God's ability is brought to application or whether it's not brought to application, we're talking about our temporal circumstances, the outworking of our faith and experience, how we're walking and uh, how we're walking with one another. So one person, uh, next application, verse 5, one person regards one day above another, another regards every day alike. Each person must be fully convinced in his own mind. And that's what it comes down to. Don't just have a kind of a wishy-washy doubt. That's not faith. Do the study. Do the homework. Pray over it. Get the, get the wisdom. Get the guidance. Come to a, an informed decision. Be fully convinced in his own mind. And then relax. You've done the homework. You're good. So he who observes the day observes it for the Lord. He who eats does so for the Lord. For he gives thanks to God. We'll be dealing with that next. The thanksgiving uh, issues, which are really grace appreciations. Giving thanks to God. And he who eats not for the Lord, he does not eat and gives thanks to God. Both groups are giving thanks to God because they're able to walk in a faith conviction. I love this. For not one of us lives for himself, not one of us dies for himself. You see it again. It's the positional truth reality which forms the basis for our experiential application. And so there it is. All right. If we live, we live for the Lord. If we die, we die for the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. Verse 10. But you, why do you judge your brother? Or you again, why do you regard your brother with contempt? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. And uh, puts it in perspective. I'm not here to judge anyone related to that. Christ is the one. All judgment has been given to the Son. So uh, verse 13, let us not judge one another anymore, but rather determine this, not to put an obstacle or a stumbling block in a brother's way. So once we're aware of what the divisions are, what the I'm sorry, not divisions, what the distinctions are, we don't want them to become divisions. We just accept them for what they are. We accept them as differences. And the differences, we're fine with those differences. We then support those differences. We don't tear them down. We don't put stumbling blocks in the way. And so uh, we don't want to hurt them. Verse 14, I know and am convinced in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but to him who thinks anything is unclean, to him it is unclean. It actually is a sin. Because in their conviction, it is a sin. Not a sin for me, but it's a sin for them. Because they're, they're operating in a manner contrary to their convictions. And conscience is going to have an issue with that. So if because of food your brother is hurt, you are no longer walking according to love. Do not destroy with your food him for whom Christ died. Again, it's the positional basis and the experiential application. How dare you? You're going to tear down the one that God is building up. No, we should be building them up. See? Years ago, I worked with a guy that his faith conviction, he was very uh, against movie theaters. And I've told you this before, I'm sure. Some of you have heard this. But he, was, uh, he felt that movie theaters were temples uh, to the Hollywood idolatry. And, uh, and so he was not going to darken the door of a, of a temple. He was not going to go into a temple of that nature. Uh, and it didn't matter if it was rated G, if it was you know something harmless and whatever. Um, it, because the, the venue itself, the, the location, the facility 
was in his mind a, a temple of sorts and it had multiple screens and whatever and so even if he was in the one room watching Bambi or whatever and then somebody else was in the next room anyway the whole place was uh, was a temple in his view okay and he would stop I mean, he would rent this is back in the blockbuster days he would rent a VHS tape and take it home and watch it in his own home because he's not bringing the temple into his own home He's not bringing idolatry into his own home. Anyway, this was the conviction he came to, and I got that, and I appreciated that. And so I, I wanted to make sure that I didn't go in on a Monday morning and, and be bragging all about my weekend and all the movies I went and saw, like, hey, did you see this or that and whatever. No, I realized, hey, here's you know, so-and-so, and I'm going I'm to not make that an issue because we don't want to throw that stumbling block out there. All right. Verse 16 says, therefore do not let what is for you a good thing be spoken of as evil. And all these other issues, they're not even issues. Don't make them issues. The kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Let's keep the first things first. And uh, let's make sure our attitude is appropriate. That's what the book of Philippians is all about. It's the book of our thinking. It's the book of our attitude, the attitude of Christ. So, He who in this way, verse 18, in this way serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. And here is where the positional meets the experiential. And here's where we see acceptable to God. We're all acceptable to God. We're all made righteous in Christ, right? But then approved by men. So we have the positional relationship and now the experiential relationship, which is a dynamic between two sinners, okay? But we're sinners saved by grace and we're sinners walking in grace and it works. It works in an amazing way, and as long as grace is applied. So then, we pursue the things which make for peace and the building up of one another. Do not tear down the work of God for the sake of food or anything else. Anything else you want to point to. It's about peace and the building up of one another. And so there it is. All things indeed are clean, but they are evil for the man who eats and gives offense. You realize that? You can actually be out of line in your liberty because you sparked the stumbling block and you knew better. And so what should have been uh, gold, silver, and precious stones for you actually ended up being wood, hay, and stubble. You end up coming under discipline for what you just did. So it is good to not eat meat or drink wine or do anything by which your brother stumbles. I'm going to read this whole chapter, aren't I? Verse 22, the faith which you have, have as your own conviction before God. Don't just accept it because so-and-so said so, Pastor Bob said so, somebody said so, mom and dad said so. You come to your faith conviction. Happy is he who does not condemn himself in what he approves. See, now you're on board in the angelic conflict. Now you're on board in your own priesthood. You're engaged in uh, personal and public wisdom as as we're studying now on Wednesday mornings. You are operating in your own standing as an adult son or daughter in, uh, in the plan of God. And so you come to your convictions and you're um, content, happy, is he who does not condemn himself in what he approves. But he who doubts is condemned if he eats. Whatever is not from faith is sin. Okay? Our priesthood, our, our walk of faith is not like the, uh, the Polish mind detectors. All right? Our walk of faith, that's you know, where you just close your eyes and hope for the best. Um, that's not a walk by faith. The walk by faith, you're not, your eyes aren't closed and hoping it all works out. Your eyes are wide open, fixed on Jesus Christ. And you're making positive faith decisions based upon those convictions. 
And we can appreciate that as well. All right. So that's Romans 14, 19. How about Colossians 3, 15? Colossians 3, 15. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. Notice uh, the context for this starts in verse 12 with, again, the emphasis on our position. Who are we in Christ? So then, so as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, we have a positional truth reality. We are saved. We are part of the royal family of God in the church age. There's application now to be made. Put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another and forgiving each other. See, each one of us individually is in Christ, but we have to relate to one another. Fellow sinners saved by grace. And that takes all these things. A heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another and forgiving each other. Whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. Beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. Then see what follows. Verse 15. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. You see this? This is your canon. This is your rule. This is your um, measuring stick and uh, the peace of Christ, to uh, which indeed you were called in one body and be thankful. See, the plan of God wasn't to uh, you know, send Jesus Christ on the cross to, sin, to, to save you, you and only you, all by your lonesome. No, we are a body in Christ. And we were to operate in this peace. We're to operate in this love. No wonder then that Paul uses uh, grace and uh, peace to start all of his uh, epistles. So let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. It's a good rule of thumb, you know. And if there's ever a doubt, if you're ever still, well, okay, you're you're still kind of torn between choice A and choice B, I get that. Sometimes there's a legitimate debate. But honestly, how long does it take? How long does it take to say, wait a minute, what what does peace tell me to do here? Okay, a lot of times those debates kind of the the internal debates go back and forth and you kind of only because you want to do something, but part of you realizes, you know what, I I probably shouldn't. Okay, so then you have this little internal debate where you can hopefully talk yourself into doing doing what you want to do when in the back of your mind you already knew up front, I probably shouldn't. Okay, so take a moment, think it through, consider with uh, with this ruler, with this canon right? The peace of Christ and say, okay, choice A, choice B, is, is, is choice A, is this really going to promote the peace of Christ? Or is that going to be a stumbling block? Is that going to be something detrimental to peace with my brother, with my sister, with my child, with my spouse, with my pastor, with, with fill in the blank, whatever it is. And then ask yourself, why is it that I really, really, really want to do this thing anyway? Is it worth the price to be paid to to hurt my brother? To destroy him for whom Christ died? I don't think so. And so, um, well, if you put it that way, okay. I'm not putting it that way. Scripture's putting it that way. And we just have to deal with it. To which indeed you were called in one body and be thankful. And let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. This is how it happens with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. 
And so, anyways, it's fun. When we look at the grammar on this, we see how verse 15 and 16 explain um, how to do verse 14. All right, so peace, we have peace with God, we have peace with one another. All of this is uh, beyond our ability. And then uh, powerfully, the peace of God sustains us in every circumstance and detail of life. Peace with God, peace with people, and peace with problems, (laughs) okay? Peace in every circumstance, should we choose to make use of it? Philippians 4, 7, 2 Thessalonians 3, 16. And of course we know this. In fact, some folks, when they heard we were going to be going to Philippians, uh, right away, this was the verse they were thinking about. Okay? This was the passage that said, wow, I can't wait to get to chapter 4. Okay, well, we got, we'll get there. Uh, there's, there's stuff on the way, though. We'll get there, too. But I understand. The be anxious for nothing, that's a powerful promise. And it's, it's a great verse, and, and I love it. We use it. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. We've got such a comprehensive doctrine of prayer right there in one verse. And then notice the consequence, verse 7, and the peace of God which surpasses all comprehension. Isn't that beautiful? The fun thing about studying peace is that we can study it, but we may never fully understand it. That the, the peace, when it comes to us in these crisis moments, when it comes to us and it unfolds us in these amazing ways, you just you, you experience it, you thank Him for it, and you can't put it into words. You can't quite, the, the, the finite human thinking does not quite grasp the, uh, the infinity of the peace of God. The peace of God which surpasses all comprehension will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. And so whatever the test is, whatever the, uh, we were tempted to be anxious about, we're not. We're going to obey the imperative to not be anxious about it. We're, we've surrendered it to Him. We've made our request known. And now we're just going to watch His, his peace unfold. And we may not understand it, and that's fine, but we're going to embrace it, <laughs> okay? Don't have, to, don't have to understand it in order to embrace it and, uh, and just thrive in, uh, in that peace. Colossians 3, no, I'm sorry, 2 Thessalonians 3.16. 2 Thessalonians, let me get past Colossians. 2 Thessalonians 3.16. Now may the Lord of peace himself continually grant you peace in every circumstance. So what does that leave out? <laughs> All right? It doesn't leave out anything, does it? It's like uh, the, the nothing and the everything that Paul just spoke of in, in, in his prayer. The, uh, to be anxious for nothing, what does that leave out? And in everything, by prayer and supplication, make your request known. So he says it twice. Uh, I mean, how much clearer can you get? Same thing here. The Lord of peace himself himself continually grant peace in every circumstance it's our provision peace with god peace with people peace with problems and in whatever circumstance is he's the god of the circumstance so who cares you know i don't have to like it and chances are i probably won't like it when it just comes down to personal preference i'd rather not right if i had my druthers i wouldn't i wouldn't do this but that's not my call. He's the one that's in charge of my circumstances. And he knows better than I do that these are the circumstances that are necessary to glorify Christ and to prepare me for the stuff coming up. See? So he knows about this. 
And in all these circumstances, even if I don't have to like it, I have to say, not my will but thine be done. I trust in in God who knows these things and whose peace is going to sustain me through all of it. So it doesn't matter. Whatever those circumstances are. I said a little bit ago, I don't care what problems you have. And I stand by that. See, it's not cold and heartless. It's biblically accurate. Say, well, pastor doesn't care about me. Didn't say it. I care about you. I just don't care about your problems. Does that make sense? You see, you see the difference? And because I care about you, I don't care about your problems. See how that works? Because God is working through those problems. And I'm actually very thankful for those problems. They're, they're drawing you closer to the Lord. So we should rejoice in those problems. You ever stop to consider that if you um, come alongside and minister and serve and you help a brother learn a lesson, quite possibly then um, you don't have to face that same test because you've just learned it walking with them through that test? You ever think about that? It's, uh, I mean, it's kind of a, a good way to get through a test by walking a sister through it, walking a brother through it, being there for them, interceding for them adopting it yourself as if it was yours? Do you pray with that kind of fervency? See, own it. All things belong to you. You belong to Christ. Christ belongs to God. That means that this employment test my brother's going through is my employment test. This marriage test is my marriage test. This uh, teenage daughter test is my... Oh, wait, it is. My teenage daughter test. Okay? Whatever it is, all things belong to you. You belong to Christ. Christ belongs to God. And so, if you think about it, this, uh, this tremendous peace provision is, uh, is, is bigger than we understand. So that the Lord of peace himself continually can grant you peace in every circumstance. The Lord be with you all. Finally then, God's peace is contrary to this fallen world's empty counterfeit form. Satan just loves to throw stuff out there and call it peace, and it's nothing but. It is not peace. Okay, or it's anything but. It is not peace. He calls it peace. Jesus promised this in John 14, 27. He said, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives. You remember that? Well, what kind of peace does the world give? And why? You realize the plan of Satan is, is unfolding. The mystery is already at work. He is just waiting, waiting to unleash his beloved son on this world. Satan has a beloved son. We call him Antichrist. And, and Satan is just waiting. I think he's waiting to procreate him and, and birth him into this world as a Nephilim. And he's just waiting to get it done. Because he wants to unleash that uh, plan and program on this planet. And guess what that plan and program is? Do you know what it is? It's a peace program. It is a world peace program. He is the white horse rider of Revelation chapter 6. And so, everybody, all these bumper stickers to visualize world peace, we could just get a felt marker out and rewrite it. Visualize the unfolding plan of Satan. Okay? Because the real peace comes when Jesus Christ conquers. The real peace comes when the Prince of Peace, Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, when He is seated on the throne of David and all of Satan's forces have been vanquished. I can visualize that but somehow it doesn't show up on bumper stickers. So John 14, this is in the stretch of John that's all red. You notice that? 
from 13 through 17, the upper room and walk to the garden discourse. And um, it starts when, when Judas walks out in 1330. And as soon as Judas walks out, boom, everything goes red after that. And Jesus launches into this upper room and walk to the garden discourse. And there's so much power in this. This is your basic doctrine right here. This is your discipleship content right here is this message. And so it's in uh, this realm then in chapter 14 that he talks about this. He talks about the coming Holy Spirit. He talks about the rapture. He says, let not your heart be troubled. That's how chapter 14 begins. Believe in God, believe also in me. And I tell you, if you just got saved this morning, I think one of the first doctrines you need to get, well, you got to learn how to confess your sins and be restored to fellowship. But then I think you got to get oriented to the rapture. You've got to know that today's the day the trumpet can sound. We've got to live day by day expecting this is our final day on this earth. So you have in my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again. And so there's rapture doctrine right there. Fundamental to anyone that just got saved this morning. They need to have the orientation that our Christian walk is a day by day, moment by moment Christian walk. And so uh, we don't sweat some things because, hey, Today could be the day anyway, so there you go. All right, then um, what else do we have? We have uh, believing in me. Believe, um, ultimately, I'm heading for verse 27 here. I will give you the, the, the helper, the advocate, the uh, parakletos here, the Holy Spirit. Um, get on down, headed towards verse 27. You'll notice every time there's black letters, you know what you got? you have a confused disciple, <laughs> okay? Every single time. And you can spot it. You can spot Peter at the end of chapter 13. You can spot Thomas at the first part of chapter 14. Philip in verse 8. Um, you can spot every time you see black letters, there's Judas, not Iscariot, in verse 22. Every single time you got black letters in these chapters, it's a confused disciple, okay? Because you have a, a, an Old Testament apostle of the Lamb who is not yet equipped to handle mystery doctrine who's not yet equipped to handle the church age truth. And so God, uh, Jesus says, all right, when the Holy Spirit comes, all of this is going to fall into place. He will bring to remembrance all these things. So all of this will come into place after the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. All right. Verse 25, these things I have spoken to you while abiding with you. That almost seems like a throwaway verse, but it's there for a reason and it's critical. Verse 25, these things I have spoken to you while abiding with you. That's a content. That's a marker that tells us that that's establishing the parameters of the course syllabus. All right? And it's key. It's, it's establishing that this upper room discourse from 13 to 14 and on through the, the high priestly prayer of 17, this body of teaching is a unit and has to be understood as such. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, He will teach you all things and bring to remembrance all that I said to you. In the church age, these very same apostles are going to be the ones receiving mystery doctrine, receiving the revelation of the New Testament canon. They're going to be writing the the, the Greek canon of the New Testament and putting it together with the doctrine they're learning on this night, the doctrine that's related in these chapters doesn't make any sense to them tonight their heads are just spinning 
but it's, it's, uh, it's a significant study. And, by the way, not only that, but it delineates the boundaries of the, of the, uh, of the syllabus, of the, of the course, of the curriculum, in particular, when you uh, go to Matthew 28, you want to ask yourself, well, what's this Great Commission thing about anyway? Right? Making disciples, teaching them, baptizing them and teaching them. Teaching them what? To observe all that I commanded you. There's parameters that are spoken there. It's not teaching them everything I ever uttered in 35 years of earthly life or 40 years of earthly life. But all that I commanded you. In other words, teaching the doctrinal content of the upper room and walk to the garden discourse. And we have parameters there for that didasco participle in Matthew 28. Anyway, in this context then, he will teach you all things and bring to remembrance all that I said to you. So is that a lot of pressure or is that something to relax in? It's not up to them. It's up to the faithfulness of God, the faithfulness of the Holy Spirit to teach them, to remind them, to provoke them, to convict them. And look what comes here, peace. Verse 27, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. This is the, be- uh, the bequest, right? This is the, the inheritance. And Jesus is, is announcing it here, and they're going to reap it. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives to you, do I give to you. Well, how's that? Do not let your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. See, anytime the world offers peace, there's still fear connected. <laughs> there's still trouble connected. There's still a, a fallen part of the fallen mind and a fallen world that's accepting the world's peace because it wants to so badly. But then it recognizes, wait a minute, there's strings attached. What's the fine print? What's the, when's the other shoe going to drop? This is too good to be true. What do I have to do to keep this? I didn't earn this and deserve this. What's this going to cost me? You see, and so when the world's offering you this kind of peace... Look out. There's reason to be fearful and troubled. When Jesus gives you his kind of peace, there's no reason to be fearful. There's no reason to be troubled. You can accept it. You can embrace it. You won't even necessarily understand it, but you're done being troubled. You're done being fearful. You are absolutely at peace because you're in Christ. You heard that I said to you, I go away and I will come to you. If you loved me, This is so powerful. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I go to the Father. What we have here is a second class condition if it is not true and it is known to not be true. But it is presented as a counterfactual to show that had it been true, then this would have been the consequence. And this is is Jesus not lying. Uh, The God who cannot lie is telling the disciples that they don't love him. Because if you had loved me, (laughs) you don't, but if you had, this is what you would have done. You heard that I said to you, I go away. And see, there's something that they call love, something they think is love, something that's a maladjustment, a misapplication of agape principles. They call it love, and Jesus says it's not love. See, because they don't want him to go away. They're still in denial about it. No, far be it from thee, Lord. This should never happen to you. It's to your advantage that I go away. Why are you clinging? 
It is to your advantage that I go away. And um, you, if you loved me, if you had loved me, you would have rejoiced. But you're not rejoicing now because you don't love me. It's a pretty convicting message. All right, for I go to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. And in so many respects, I mean, yeah, it'd be kind of fun, but I wouldn't trade the church age for anything. And I wouldn't trade the 20th and 21st century of the church age for anything. See, um, <laughs> wow, yeah, there's some thoughts there. But the, uh, the, the, the blessings that we have, the, the tools that we have, the logos software that we have, the advantages that we have, the indoor plumbing and refrigeration we have, the, I mean, I, 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 I like our, our generation, all right? But, but if I could get in a time machine and go back and vacation for a week, yeah, I, I'd go back to the first century, of course. I'd go back and see the earthly ministry of Jesus. I'd go back to Golgotha. I would look at the cross, First place I go. Um, but what they had for three and a half years, walking with Jesus, learning from him, eating with him, all this other stuff, was inferior to what you and I have today. With our completed canon of Scripture, with our permanent indwelling and abiding influence, we have what they didn't have. We have a seated, victorious Savior at the right hand of God the Father. Jesus didn't have that. Of course not. He was that, but he was not that yet. He would become that in his ascension and in his session. We have the permanent indwelling of the Holy Spirit. He had an Old Testament indwelling of the Holy Spirit. We have the permanent indwelling church age in, uh, Holy Spirit. You understand the difference on that? And we have a Father that we approach directly. We have the full abiding Trinity at work in this church age. Jesus didn't have that. And so it is to your advantage that I go away. And so don't be fearful about these things. So now I've told you before it happens so that when it happens you may believe. Uh, You're not going to be tossed for a loop. You're going to see it. Just take it in stride. I will not speak much more with you for the ruler of the world is coming and he has nothing in me. So all of these great provisions we have for the church age, we need them because this is the intensified stage of the angelic conflict where we are wrestling with the, the principalities and powers, the rulers and the authorities. But so that the world may know that I love the Father, I do exactly as the Father commanded me. And as a follow-up to that earlier verse, (laughs) he says, look, you guys may not love me, and so you're not rejoicing over tonight and tomorrow and the crucifixion, but I love my Father, and I'm going to that cross. And then he says, get up, let us go from here. And that's why to call the whole thing the upper room discourse is a little bit wrong because chapter 15, he's walking. They're walking to the garden. Chapter 15, chapter 16, they're walking. They're getting to the garden. And he utters the high priestly prayer in chapter 17. Then he enters into the garden and um, has more prayer in the garden. But So this is the the upper room and walk to the garden discourse. Usually, though, it's just called the upper room discourse, okay? All right, but the world offers a counterfeit peace. You ever think about that? It doesn't offer a counterfeit grace, but it does offer a counterfeit peace. And I find that extraordinary. All right, well, that wraps up this. I've got just a few minutes left then. So let's uh, go back to Philippians and uh, 
When we come back Wednesday, we'll start our next section. I'll use the rest of this morning to kind of tease it a little bit, looking at verses uh, 3 through 11. I thank my God and all my remembrance of you. So we've got to talk about Thanksgiving. We've got to talk about memory and um, some of the memnonics that are at work and some of the, why is that such a hard word to remember? Why, and why is that such a hard word to spell? And um, well, it comes from this, okay? And it comes from the blessings we have. You know, memory is a blessing. Memory in prayer is worship. We'll talk about that. All right, so uh, Philippians opens with a, with a standard yet significant... I, I just repeated this from the opening slide. Uh, we have a salutation in verses 1 and 2. A standard yet significant salutation, avoiding Paul's own apostolic office, yet spotlighting the overseer and deacon offices of every local church. Three remaining sections of chapter 1 can be titled with marvelous memory verses. And so this is what we're going to do. We're going to handle each one of them in turn. We have the thanksgiving and prayer section, verses 3 through 11. And the Bible verse for that section is, He who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. And, and we're going to lock in on this, and we'll find our own applications for this, because it's given corporately. He who began a good work in you, lampstand of believers at Philippi, including overseers and deacons, okay? It is a corporate application that we will then apply to ourselves corporately as Austin Bible Church. He who began a good work in Austin Bible Church will himself perfect and complete until the day of Christ Jesus. What we'll deal with the, the concept corporately as a lampstand because that's how it's taught here. Then beyond that, we'll go to the individual applications, what you and I might consider in terms of our own salvation and the working out of our salvation, our Christian walk, and ultimately our promotion to glory. Because I believe that uh, not because of this text, but because of parallel texts and applications, that we can take a secondary approach to this verse. That he who began a good work in you when he gave you eternal life and saved you in September of 1973, he's going to keep working in you day by day until such time as he's done. And then he's going to call you home. And so we're going to make an individual application of that as well. Not necessarily from this text, but beyond this text. We'll find the, uh, the support for that in parallel New Testament passages. All right, so that's verses 3 through 11. It is the Thanksgiving and prayer section, and we'll be dealing with those issues. Then there's the occasion for writing section in verses 12 through 18. centers on, my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel. My circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel. And that powerful verse keeps us from the pity parties. It keeps us from the boo-hoo, or keeps us from the I don't like my circumstances. Well, hello, if my circumstances have worked together for good, if my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel, then I'm glad I have these circumstances. It's better than not having these circumstances. I'm thankful that these are the circumstances he's chosen to put me through. If this is what God wants, then praise him for it. And then the conclusion is to live as Christ, to die as gain. That's our Bible verse for the third portion, verses 19 through 30. The chapter concludes with application both for Paul himself and for the Philippians. So given the circumstances that we're in now, given what God's doing with it now, what can we say looking forward? Well, there's a fork in the road and whichever fork God puts us on, it's fine with us, okay? 
Because to live is Christ and to die is gain. And so whichever fork he puts us on, say, thank you, Father. We're going to be obedient and uh, we're going to take the road you have for us. So Wednesday night, we'll come here to he who began a good work will perfect it. And that should all be on one line. I don't know why the it dropped down. I'll fix that before Wednesday. And uh, we'll talk about the Thanksgiving. I thank my God and all my remembrance of you. Following this uh, salutation, Paul typically offers thanksgiving on behalf of the recipients of his epistles. You want to have some fun? Read through all of Paul's epistles. Just read through the, the salutation and the thanksgiving prayer. And it won't take long. You'll, you could just read the first part of the first chapter of all Paul's epistles and find the ones he's not thankful for. <laughs> and uh, here's a clue, okay? Well, it's the ones that aren't listed on that slide. You know, maybe the ones that say, I'm amazed you've, you've abandoned grace so quickly, okay? Like the one we just finished in Galatians. All right. Anyway, Wednesday night we'll come back to this, Lord willing and rapture pending. Father, I thank you for this day. I thank you for your truth. Father, I pray uh, we've had just such a, such a brief study, Father, uh, a Wednesday night in grace, a Sunday morning in peace. Obviously, there's hours and hours that we could pour into each one of these topics. But I pray as we move forward that you would open our eyes to these realities, that in the coming uh, classes, Father, more of the impact of this will be made clear, and that you will uh, show us uh, the, the truth of, of these aspects so we can live it out. We want to be gracious. We've received grace. We want to extend grace. We've received peace. We want to extend peace. Show us how to be the conduits of your supply. I thank you, Father, and I praise you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.